Welcome to the podcast, Most People Don't But You Do, stories and conversations about the benefits received and the fulfillment enjoyed by doing what most people don't. This is Bart Berkey, CEO and founder of Most People Don't, we're a motivational storytelling and training company where we provide enabling tools to empower you to do what most people don't. Today's guest typifies what people always don't do, but she is doing religiously and relentlessly and with great passion. Her name is Claude Silver. I want to read a little bit about her before we jump right into questions. She is the Chief Heart Officer at VaynerMedia. And in parentheses, she always likes to include HR slash people in case you don't know what a Chief Heart Officer does. You're not doing surgery, I'm assuming. No? Correct, correct. Um, I'd like to describe Clyde as kind, genuine, authentic, and real. Uh, She is certainly doing what most people don't, not only in her role as a Chief Heart Officer, but also in her life. And what's really cool about Claude, and I'm gonna read just a couple other other interesting things, is that um, I have been studying you ever since I was introduced to you through our mutual friend, Gail Olofsson. And I selected what I was going to wear today was not gonna be anything different than what I put on this morning. Because what I'm learning from you, you need to be real, you need to be authentic, you need to be yourself. So while I have interviewed other CEOs of companies that I might have been inclined to put on a jacket and a tie, you know what, Claude, this is me just like this is you. Um, I need to read one more description and I'm talking too much already. Here's a quote. I'm an emotional optimist, a coach, a manager, and a mentor. As the first ever chief heart officer, it's my great honor to lead at VaynerMedia. I work for, and it states 800 humans, but I think you've grown since then. That's about 1,150 as I last looked. Goodness gracious. And I'm in touch with the heartbeat of every single person in the company. My role is to infuse the agency with empathy. It is your purpose. Well, that concludes the podcast. You've been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, um, Claude, I, thank you so much for joining. First of all, say something so I can stop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And yes, what you see is what you get. That's how I like I like to be. And that's how I like you to be. So that green t-shirt is stunning. All right. Perfect. Thank you. You made me feel so much more comfortable. You've, you've touched me with empathy already. Um, I want to ask you some questions that are different than perhaps what other people have been asking you. Um, The individuals that I have on my podcast make a difference because they do what most people don't do. Therefore, I need to lead the same way. I can't ask the same questions because they can get the answer somewhere else. I want to hear about Claude Silver's influence in growing up. Where did you grow up? What did it look like? Do you have brothers and sisters? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I love it. I love that question, actually, because my roots are very important to me. I was born and raised in New York City up until I was about 11, 11 and a half. And then we moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, prior to moving to Santa Fe, I was you know, big into sports, real tomboy. I have a brother that's 18 months younger than me. Uh, two wonderful parents, very generous people. Uh, my dad's an entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and my mom, for many, many years, was an elementary school teacher, and she has now been a psychotherapist for probably the last forty plus years. Um, yeah, and are they where are they living now? They live in Santa Fe. Okay, in Santa Fe. Yeah, and so we moved to Santa Fe, and I started seventh grade there at a very small little prep school. And as you can imagine, you know, moving from the melting pot of New York City to 
you know, the Rocky Mountain Desert, uh, 7,000 feet up and all the houses are adobe. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think this was in the early 80s. There weren't a lot of other, you know, Jewish people and, and growing up in New York City. Yeah, there's a there's a, a cultural Jewish Mecca, if you will. And so that was that was really interesting. And, um, you know, I think there were, you know, there, there weren't Black people there. There were um, Hispanic and Latin and Mexican people there. There were Native American people there, indigenous people. And so it was really like a mind shift in many, many ways going to a completely different place in our country. And I became really aware of the outdoors there and really invested in being outdoors and you know snowboarding at an early age, which was great. Uh, played tennis, played soccer. And, um, you know, my brother and I being 18 months apart, we're very, very close. He's still my best friend. And I'm very grateful for that. My Nana, who died four years ago at 101, uh, by, I mean, she was my mentor, thousand percent. And we called each other heart, which is the most beautiful thing. So the fact that she started calling me her heart when I was probably seven or eight years old, and here I am now carrying this incredible title. She was alive to hear me get the title, which really, it just makes my heart soar. You know, it just makes my heart burst open. She really taught me the magic, I would say, of empathy and kindness. And also with my parents really also taught me what it was like to have a spirit of generosity. Yeah. So did your Nana live with you when you were in Santa Fe? No, she didn't live with us. She lived close by real independent woman. Like okay. after she, after my uh, grandfather died, she, you know, she kind of started life again there and that she was 80. So she had 20 more years to live, which is so great. No, she was really big in the community, uh, big volunteer at the hospital. She was the person that, you know, I've, I've told this story before, but I want to tell it here because yeah. it's so important. You know, we would leave a Trader Joe's or we would leave the, the, the bank or we would leave, you know, the bar getting a drink. And she would say, would you do me a favor, Bart? Because she'd see your name tag there. Mm -hmm. And you'd look at her look down a little bit because she was short. Sure. Yeah, sure. And she'd say, would you have a peaceful day? And that was that. Yeah. And just how brilliant is that? And it reminds me, my mother is 85. She lives in Pittsburgh and she is similar to that from an approach perspective. And why I wanted to ask that question is I heard you share that story about your Nana and that she was volunteering until she was a hundred years old and she was all about peace and goodness. How do you think, or why do you think she became that way? Or what was her influence? Because thank goodness. And there's this, this uh, traditional turning point, I guess, of if you perhaps did not have your nan in your life, that maybe that wouldn't have then been instilled so deeply in you. So what was her life like growing up that caused her to be so empathetic and caring? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, I do know what her life was like. I think that uh, she was one of four children born in Michigan in like 1911 or something and uh, started working at her dad's general store when she was about six years old. She was considered the ugly duckling of her family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right there, I, I would imagine that when you don't feel like you belong, you can go a couple different routes. You can 
submerge yourself in the darkness and uh, self-pity and everything like that and start, you know, that, that trail of negativity. I don't belong. I don't belong. I don't belong. I'm ugly, whatever. Yeah. Or you can find ways to free yourself of that. And I think that my Nana, and by the way, she was not an ugly duckling at all. Uh-huh. But I think my Nana went the other way, which was to be of service. Right. I think that, well, I mean, I know that was her superpower. That was yeah. her superpower. And, um, you know, that's, she just had a heart to help and a heart to give and a wicked sense of humor and really beat to her own drum. And that wasn't necessarily something that people approved of in, in her earlier years, but she really, he, she kept on keep keeping on and man, was she magnificent. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a lot of similarities from what I learned about you already, Claude, about perhaps not necessarily feeling like you didn't belong at a certain point yeah. and then finding ways. And it's so interesting. I, I shared this presentation and it, it, and it started right before the pandemic and it's called, you can do anything for a year. And it was really to give people and friends in, in the hospitality industry belief that they are remarkable, that they are not redundant. And it goes on to talk about, you need to do four things, be flexible, be accepting, be calm and creative and being empathetic. And the empathetic part, when you do all the research, and, and you probably know this better than I do, is that it allows you to get out of your own head when you are doing something for someone else. You're walking in their shoes, you're seeing how their life is, and then your worries, you don't have time to think about your worries because you're so helping others. Yeah. Um, is, is that how, would you, do you believe that that is perhaps one of the strongest influences because you had some things in common I do. I mean, I, I think Nana probably saw something in me at a very early age or something, some of my challenges or struggles. And I would imagine that she scooped me up in many ways with her wings and you know, led me in so many ways. That's not to say it, everything was utopia. And it's not to say I followed her lead all the time because I didn't. But she was a person that I could come back to time and time and time again. And there was no judgment. Yeah judgment-free zone yeah almost like you know the gyms that have that big sign right judgment-free zone you come in here you be who you are and you exercise yeah um, I I yeah. love Claude that you just said that she scooped you up um <laughs> t- tell me about you, your mother and your father because of all the interviews that I was able to kind of capture and redo the research on you not in a stalker kind of way but in a pleasant kind of professional way I just hear so much about your nana yeah. Um, were your parents also aware of it? You describe it, you know, you had struggles growing up. Mm-hmm. Were they yeah. aware of it and were they able to assist and scoop you up as well? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I was um, just diagnosed as dyslexic at a very early age. My mom was an elementary school teacher. Mm-hmm. So that was something that she, you know, she clocked very early on and got me into see tutors very early on and really helped guide me in that way. My, my mom has, my mom is actually the most intelligent person I've ever met in my life, internally, externally. She has, again, a wicked sense of humor mm-hmm. and she can peg people energetically, intuitively. I don't know what it is, but she has a way about her. And I'm so glad that she is now a psychotherapist or has been for 40 years. She helps people. That's her mission. 
you know, to help them unlock, to facilitate their own growth and development, which is really something that I emulate and got from her. Right. So now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tracking here. So your, your Nana scooped you up because perhaps she felt like she didn't fit in. So you have that resource immediately. Mm -hmm. um, understanding that you probably got your propensity to be able to peg people, understand the room, um, understand the temperature of the room, the culture and the feel probably from your mother. Yeah, yeah. How about your father's influence? If you yeah. don't mind me asking, and no, if there's no. anything I'm asking you that you don't like just say. Oh, all good. All okay. good. Uh, <laughs> my dad is one of the kindest people I know. Okay. He is clever. He is goofy. He is a child, meaning like he will get down in the dirt right now at 80 years old and he'll play with my kids. Uh, he plays golf still, he still works, but he is a kind person and a calm person. My mom's very calm as well. And, uh, and I'm very calm. In fact, sometimes people, you know, I think people sometimes wanna knock on my door and say, are you there? Cause I'm just very chill. Um, my dad is a curious guy. He reads every book on history and presidents and this and that. He'll quote some you know, paragraph in a book or quote some movie. And I, I, love, I love my family. And my brother is, like I said, my best friend. And we're tight. You know, we're tight. We were a tight foursome. And now our family, you know, now each of us have families too. Yes. And is your brother near you in New York? Yeah. Yeah, he and his family live in the Upper West Side. He's got two girls that are both teenagers. Awesome. And awesome. a wonderful wife, yeah. Yeah, and I think when I, when I first met you, actually, when you were speaking to a group of students for University of Rhode Island with Gail's class, my immediate sense from you is that you were disarming. It felt like I've known you forever, and it feels you create a sense of immediate trust because you are genuine, because you are yourself. Question with regard to that is when you were growing up and understand that you studied psychology for a while, um, when did you really get a sense that you could also, as you said, peg people, that you could look at a room and understand the temperature, the culture, who was real, who was not real? When did you start to get that sense of, I have this talent too? The first time I, I knew I was picking up on someone was in nursery school. Yeah. And I would never have known what that was, but I can yes. remember who it was and I can remember what it was. And that's pretty wild that I still remember that because I was four years old. Yeah. Can do you remember the story that goes along with it? You don't I, I do. I, I still I know the person's name, but I won't say the person's yeah. name. Yeah. Um, this person came across, you know, four-year-old kid, yeah. came across to me as very, very fragile and scared and full of anxiety and not, you know, an introvert for sure, not fitting in yeah. in her own right. And I really took it upon myself to scoop her up with my wings and bring her in as a social person as I am and bring her into whatever it was we were doing yeah and the most amazing thing is that i ran into her many years later at college okay that was unbelievable and uh she she had evolved and she was she was definitely not the shy little girl in the corner but what a what a wild oh, like what a wild 
splash of water was that on my face oh. to all of a sudden run into her after so many years because I remember I like I can see it I remember yeah oh my gosh and, and I think Cloud one of the reasons why I was initially so attracted to you is that as you just described that at four years old and my mother had to remind me of and I, this is not about me but just some similarities um, and I list this in my book um, that when I was in elementary school so a little bit older than four I was captain of my kickball team for the day. And for some reason, I chose Betsy. And she was, I described in the book as this little uh, red haired, pink faced, freckled girl who was not a kickball player. But I wanted her because she had always been picked last. I wanted her to be picked first. And I would never have remembered this. But I guess the mother said something to my mother. And my mother reminded me years ago, and I ended up putting it in the book. So I just think it's really cool that, you know, that doesn't happen all the time, right? That, that people are, and I'm going to read another little quote about what you do right now. You make people feel like they belong and you're this natural mentor. Yeah. Um, and just so, so how lovely that that, that that happened. And then as you were um, finishing your, your, your college studies, did you find yourself continuing to scoop people up? before you entered into the professional world? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've scooped people up for as long as I can remember. I think if anything, I had to work on scooping myself up. Okay. That's what, that's really what my twenties were all about. And I, you know, I was on the 10 year plan uh, when it came to college. I didn't graduate until I was 28 because I had, I had taken so many years off and really done my own school, really, you mm -hmm. know, studied, uh, went deep into, clairvoyancy and chakras and intuitive studies and Hinduism and Buddhism and just did my own thing for a while. Um, but it's, it was my natural, my natural way is to create space for people. My natural way is to create a place where people can come to and feel loved and feel safe and feel like they belong. And there is a no judgment zone. It is really, really true for me because who am I to judge and what am I judging anyway? Right, right. You are no better than anyone else. And no as we, before we hit record, you know, you were sharing that <clears throat> you're no busier than, busier than me or more important than me. That's right. And yet I hear so many people and it's so funny with all these job postings for your company, Claudine, they're just like, I would do anything to work with you. And I'll get to some of those questions here <laughs> in a moment. But I love that the no judgment zone, making people feel like they belong. Um, incredible. So when you are giving so much and you just referenced that you perhaps were, and you would never probably repeat this, scooping up too many people, when you went to work on yourself, did it provide then a balance for you? Because I would imagine scooping people up, it's got to weigh heavy. Mm. Um. So and we'll, I'm going to change the metaphor from scooping people up right now to being a sponge. You know, naturally, I gravitate towards people and, and want to be with them on the journey if they want me there on the journey with them. Uh, I had to learn to not be a sponge, to not soak up all of their energy, to not soak up all of their emotional baggage or their emotional weight. And that's what I, and you know, that's the work of, of doing energy work. And that's why I really dove into some of that work, which was how do I protect my energy without taking on someone else's energy and still be able to create 
this space for us. A, like I said, a space where people can come to feel loved and that they belong and a space where people can come and feel ignited. Yeah. So how are you able, what, what tips, what suggestions, what offerings, what learnings could you share with our listeners on perhaps how they can protect their own energy? You know, we have everyone from CEOs of companies to hospitality people to nurses and doctors. Yeah. A lot of people that are in the serving business, giving to others, what would you suggest? And, uh, you know, this could be an 18 hour conversation, I'm sure, but one or two things on perhaps what you do to protect your own energy that someone could be like, oh, I learned this from Claude Silver. Yeah. Two things right off the bat. Uh, the first thing is remembering that it's not about you. I mean, that's, that's the first thing. It's yeah. nothing is about me except for what comes out of me. Uh -huh. So. I don't have to have all the answers. I'm there to supply a support system, supply a neutral vessel <laughs> for things to go into, yes. but it's not about me. It's about them. So that's the first thing. Yes. And it might be easier said than done, but by the way, it can be done. Sure. And then the second thing, which, which helps the first thing is a visualization. <clears throat> and that's literally to put a piece of aluminum foil between you and the person or an imaginary, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Imaginary aluminum foil or imaginary um, mirror. And that is, it's reflective. So their energy just goes back to them. Your energy just comes to you. So it's, uh, it's like I say, you have to, you have to be willing to imagine that, right. but it's neutral. There's nothing there's nothing you know, violent or harsh about it. It's literally just sending their energy back to them. Right, right. With and grace, then, with generosity, with peace. And with decency, with humanity. That's right. Which, which I will lead into the next question about bringing humanity and heart back into the workplace. And it's so lovely to hear your message. Um, I, I came up with a saying, and I thought it was going to be really cool in, in take off doing decency. And I, and I, I bought the URL because I just, it just has a nice ring to it, doing decency. And one of the reasons why I, I came up with it is that I, you know, I follow a lot of people on social media and there's a lot of very, very sad people out there and they're sad often from work related situations and they don't need to be, they don't need to be. So I'm going to ask you about bringing humanity and heart back into the workplace. That is a massive task, I'm sure. Can you talk about what your just first kind of approach is since you've had this role as chief heart officer? And I know it's been several years now. Yeah, the, uh, the approach is exactly how I show up with you on this podcast. It's literally being open to receive. It's remembering that there are two people in this uh, interaction here. You have, your, you have your stuff, I have my stuff. We're never gonna know what each of us is going through behind our eyes. Mm -hmm. And so that, get, that brings a lot of humility to a situation. Mm -hmm. um, knowing that I'm here to create that space with someone. And again, it's a neutral space where anything can happen in it. No judgment zone though, that's really important. And I'm a guide. And so because I have worked in advertising agencies for so long, I speak, I know the business, I speak the business, right? I speak the lingo and I am, it's easier for me to guide someone to 
their next move or who to talk to or where to get mentorship from or where to get this training from or how to rethink something because I've been there. And while that same exact experience may not have happened to me, I've you know, been around the block long enough to have had many experiences in my life. So being a connector, a guide, a connector, and really strengthening the connective tissue that we have, almost 1,200 people, is something that I do all day long by being high touch, by being available, by setting up quick 15-minute meetings with people where they can come in and tell me anything, or I sit there and I ask questions just to get a sense of how they're doing and if we can change anything to make their experience better, or is it, you know, they, they want to bring their friends in because they love it so much. And there's that sponge aspect. Yeah. As you described it, but to the point of any of the negative energy is being deflected perhaps back to them. You're not allowing the negative energy to soak into you but you are asking questions in which perhaps some negative things could come about, correct? Yeah, sure. The ne negative cynicism, anxieties, you know, we get a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I want to do in those situations is sue the person. Yes. And I know that I can only do so much. You know, I hope that my presence and some of my guidance is soothing and they find it calm and... Yeah. Um, and generous, and I can't fix everything. No, that's the truth. Right. And at a certain point, I would imagine that it's up to the individuals to change their approach, their look, their outlook, their perspective. I just gave a presentation last week, and I had an image of a boulder blocking a highway. And I said, you could look at this and you could say, okay, I'm going to figure a way to get around it, or I'm going to perceive it as a pebble, right? <laughs> it's my approach. It's my approach. It's my outlook. Um, are you able to, with 1,200 employees, to follow up with them to say, oh, you were telling me about the situation. I didn't realize that your mother had to walk a mile each way to work was one of your stories. I didn't realize that you have four other roommates and we need to make sure that we pay for high-speed internet access because everyone works from home right now. How are you able to, if you can, remember and follow up on those things or do you just have an incredible memory which you probably do <laughs> well I don't know if it's an incredible memory but but my business is is the people mm -hmm. like that's all like that's all I care about is the people in their experience so that's what I gravitate towards it's it, it comes naturally to me but if you ask me to solve a mathematical equation or you ask me to do some analysis on some numbers, it doesn't come naturally to me and I would really have to study. So people and, and who we are, and I say this all the time, you know, the, the messiness, the messy imperfection that we are is something I gravitate to. I really do. And I am no different than anyone else. Perfectly imperfect. Perfectly imperfect. And I got my mess too. <laughs> Good to hear. Um, I also had read something or heard you say something about infusing empathy into every single employee and being able to impact them. Yeah. It, it, when I was talking before about doing kindness for others, so you get out of your own head, you worry less if you're doing for others. There was one study, and I thought I had the details in front of me, but I don't, but they just referenced that um, about 20% of people, and it was like a brain imaging study, and I can share this with you later, have the propensity to be empathetic. That means approximately 80% of people 
are not predisposed to be empathetic. So how are you able to find and be able to achieve success by infusing empathy if perhaps some of your 1,200 associates, employees, team members aren't naturally empathetic? Yeah, so empathy is the emotion, right? It's an emotion. How, how, how that comes into the world is through kindness and compassion. Mm-hmm. Kindness and compassion is like, it's sand, it's everywhere. It's thank you. It's how are you? It's I hear your mother's in the hospital. It's I, I heard you had a bad day yesterday. It's, hey, congratulations, you just got engaged. Wow, what's that like? I mean, kindness and compassion is, it, it just, I believe everyone has that. I really believe we are born that way. I really do. What happens along the way is very different and up to that person's um, uh environment environment culture yeah right so i'm just thinking about the culture that you have created with gary and other senior leaders at vayner is to create obviously a culture in which caring is rewarded that is viewed as success and i'll just give you another story you know i talk about most people don't the name of my company and claude it's interesting because i i try to encourage people by sharing stories about if you do something If you take the stairs, there's going to be great benefits, health benefits. If you say thank you, show appreciation, there's going to be great benefits. And so I ask people to evaluate doing something. And if the benefits are great and the consequences of not doing something are severe, you should go ahead and do it. People always have to make a choice of do I do something or do I not do something? And I'll give you a quick example. My family and I, when I was referencing, we were in Florida last week. And, um, and I don't want this to sound boastful. And sometimes I insert imaginary people so it doesn't look like I'm being boastful, but I'll just share this with you. And I just want your reaction. There was, um, we were leaving from Sarasota to fly back to Washington, DC. A 12 year old boy by himself um, was flying by himself. His mother was there and I could tell that she was nervous. The flight attendant got the young man escorted him on the plane. And I turned to her and I said, look, my family and I are all traveling. You know, we're parents, we're a family. My kids are a little bit older, 22 and 20, but they're with me. If he needs anybody, I'll introduce himself to me. And I just want to make sure that he's comfortable. And so on the flight, I saw the flight attendant was talking to him. Everything was great. Well, when we landed, he was in the very back of the plane and I needed to wait. And again, this is not boastful, but I needed to wait until I made sure he was off the plane and he was with somebody. So the gate agent was with him. I said, you better call your mother. You're good. You know what? We're family, whatever you need. And so um, my wife, if she was paying more attention, she would have done that. My son and my daughter, even though they're very kind, they probably wouldn't have been so boastful or so aggressive to help. But how come no one else saw that? Do, wow. do you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's not that they see it. Yeah. Not that they didn't see it. They just chose not to act on it. Perhaps. Yes. Right. Yeah. Why, why do we cite, why do we walk by homeless people on the street? Why do I, why do there's tons of things that you and I, and many people notice because we do for those of us that are, uh, are, are benefited by being able observant. To see. Yes. Well, yes. And even having eyesight. I mean, we, we see a lot of things. Do we walk by? 
Do we judge or do we do something? Look, we all need each other. Mm-hmm. And we all need each other for different reasons. And then there are going to be those things like that kid. He didn't necessarily know that he needed a guide. Right. He didn't know that. So you stepped in right. for his guide. Right, right. But I don't think that people necessarily didn't see it. I believe that people see everything. They choose, we choose not to act all the time. Yeah. And I think that that's the difference between a better world. If we can act on things, if we can do the things that we know that we should do and are able to do, you know, someone asked me the other day, they said, what's your, what is your vision for most people don't? And I said that most people don't can't even be, won't even be a statement because everyone will do. Right. Like I want to run most people down out of business because they want people to do. All right. Um, this, this next question, and sorry, we got off topic a little bit, but I feel like it's a little therapy session. I can tell why people love you so much. Um, we are hearing so often that people are so very, very busy and that there are so many open positions. And I saw even on LinkedIn that you had commented and I looked through the list and there's like 120 positions open within your company. Um, when people are this busy, what are your recommendations and how do you handle balance? So you have two young children, you have a lovely wife, Andrea, you, you know, you have a lot going on. How are you able to find the balance with such busyness? So balance is a funny word. And I don't know if there is such a thing as balance as there is synergy. There are, there's integration. There's ways in which I make things possible. There are some days I have balance in my life and there's some days I don't, but I have created a synergy which allows me to flow, which allows me to operate in this world. When I'm out of alignment, when I don't have it, I'm not the greatest person to be around. I'm just not. And with all of us working at home or at least working at home most of the days right now, uh, all of us are trying to integrate our work and our life. It's becoming one thing. So what do I have to do is tell people to take their PTO, tell people to step away for 10 minutes and take a walk, tell people to do 10 jumping jacks, have people do like, hey, do your 90 minutes of work, turn off all your Slack notifications and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you get your 20 minutes of Instagram time. Mm -hmm. So you got to also reward, you know, I want to make it fun for people also, because otherwise this is just drab, right? Here we are 18 months later, still at home. And look, no one's feeling particularly like the best ever. So there are things that we can do to empower people to, raise their hands, to stand up for themselves, to feel like they can take a day off or they can take their two weeks off or whatever it is. And I think it's up, ultimately up to us leaders to help empower the people that, for example, that 12-year-old kid, Yes. right? Empower him to call your mom, you know, be responsible, you know, connect some of the dots here. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah, I, I also, you at one point had said something about that you don't fill your bucket. You empty your bucket so there's more space for living. Yeah, I, I really try to do that every night. I really, really do. 
and it's not perfect. There are some days where I go to bed and I'm like, ay, 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 I did not solve that today. Or I left that hanging or I'm thinking about future tripping about the next day. But ultimately, because my priority is also my kids, I want to be as present as I possibly can be and not be on my phone while I'm reading a goodnight book to Shalom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's on me. That's on me. And, you know, these kids, these little kids are, are aware enough to know when I, my head is in my phone and not with them. And, and I'm sure you want to be able to instill the similar values that your parents instilled in you and that your Nana instilled in you. So, so Shalom and Edison yes. will grow up also to be able to be kind and generous and thoughtful and be able to peg people and help people. Um, as I, as I had shared with you, Claude, that, you know, first time I met you, you were very disarming. So the, the question is, with regard to you officially still being in human resources, mm -hmm. how are you able to build trust with individuals? Because in my 32 years of being in different types of industries, often HR is meant to be the resource, the heartbeat, I think, as you had shared, but sometimes they feel that there's a political pull. So that if I know that Bart is so unhappy, well, I'm going to go say something to his, to his boss or her boss, and therefore it's going to get back. How are you able to use information and build trust in which people keep on coming back to you? Such, such a good question. So first and foremost, it's, it's letting people know that I work for them and I work with them. That is my job. My job is not to look good at the end of the day. My job is not to turn me into some hero. My job is to turn them into the best them they can be while I'm with them. And so if Bart comes to me and he's having a problem with his manager or didn't like the review you just got, we're going to work together to figure out how you can communicate that to your boss, how you can communicate that. And if you feel like you want me there or you want me to do it, then I will do it for you or with you. But I don't want to be the one, I'm not, I don't want to be a puppeteer behind the scenes pulling anyone's strings. I, I, I want this to be the greatest place that people, that this is a career defining. They look back on this in seven, 15, 10 years and they say, gosh, those five years I spent at Vayner were the best ever. Oh, I made the best friends. I learned so much and it propelled me, catapulted me to be the next CMO of God knows what. So giving trust and letting people know immediately the only value that you can bring today is to be a good person, is to be a kind person, is to try to be the bigger person in every situation. That's all you need to do. Yeah, and as you said, that it reminds me, Dr. Wayne uh, Dyer, God yeah. bless his soul, yes. you know, would talk about be kind or be right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and he was always trying to encourage people, it's more important to be kind. And I think you have referenced that before also, it's more important to be kind than to be right. So how do you handle, and let's say from a heart perspective, when someone is not doing a good job, that they're not being gracious and kind and generous or even effective in their role. Yeah. So, you know, our culture is called the honey empire. The honey is obviously how you treat people, how we expect you to treat others, being the bigger person in every situation, you know, being someone of, of generosity and, and to wanting to turn that other person into a champion. The empire obviously is the business success that we get from that. 
51% honey, 49% empire. Uh 51% is a big number there though. So it is known throughout the land from their first day on until their entire tenureship, what we're all about. I spend an hour every single Monday with new hires telling them about the honey empire and and all of that good stuff. Um, That doesn't mean that someone's not gonna get crusty or burnt out or full of cynicism or criticize people or do that publicly because it's human nature to do whatever. Like I I can't regulate people's emotions for them. I I can try to emulate that for them, but that's about it. And so when you come across that or you come across a bully, you know, we wanna, I wanna know about it. I want to figure out and scratch and sniff like what's going on there with that person. And maybe something's going on at home. Maybe someone's, maybe they're anxious. Maybe they want to get credit, whatever. And so I'll either work with that person. I'll work with the people around them. And then we give them our observations and what we call kind candor feedback. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very, very rare today. And I say this and I knock on wood right now that we have a lot of those cynics, uh, at the workplace. I don't believe we do. But where we do, it is our job, my job, their manager's job to say, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Like here's 10 people in an anonymous feedback survey that just say, wow, you hit home runs here, here, and here, but the way you treat people is toxic. What's up with that? And then ultimately it's up to them if they can change. Yeah. Yeah. And that all aligns with trying to create such a culture of kindness and respect and being the greatest workplace in the world, which then leads, I have two more questions for you, Claudia, and I'm so grateful. And I know our listeners are anxiously taking notes as well, learning different things. So truly appreciate it. Um, We were referencing about the open positions. Mm -hmm. And if you just go to LinkedIn or any other different social media sites, you see a long list of them, which is terrific. And when I watch you know, Gary, your boss on Instagram, often he will be wearing his um, mobile number on a t-shirt. And often people in the audience, whether they're, you know, 16, 19, or 59 will stand up, Gary, I want to work with you. What's the best way? Like, what's the best way? And I was looking at some of the comments regarding the postings on LinkedIn. And there are people that are just like, you know, oh, it would be my dream to work with you. And I would do anything to work with you, Claude, you know, and just like very, complimentary. What would your suggestions, recommendations, advice be to those people that would like to work for your type of company to work for and with you? Yeah, I think, I I think about DRock. So Gary's videographer a lot, you know, DRock, the way DRock got in is he made a movie for Gary. He provided some value off the bat, something that we didn't have. And now he's DRock Uh (laughs) six years later. Providing value is really, is, is really important. So sometimes someone doesn't, here's an example. Mm-hmm. When, uh, when you have a baby, people immediately are like, what can I bring you? What can I bring you? What can I bring you? When you have a baby, you can't think straight. So I don't know what you can bring me. So just bring something. Yes. So that's the value. Just bring something. You want to send, you know, send over a, a plate of bowl, spaghetti bolognese. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. Pro- provide value. You know, you, I mean, I'm making this up on the fly, but no. I've, I've spoken enough out there where people can hear that I'm, I have a real deep interest in spiritualities. I have a real deep interest in this. I want to bring humanity into the workplace. Okay. 
figure out what that looks like and send it over. Yeah. To your point before, Claude, you said it's not about you. Yeah. Okay. So, so just because I put on a post, it would be my dream to work with Claude Silver and I would do anything to do that. I hear a lot of eyes and this goes back to, you know, my Ritz Carlton global sales days. It's not about me. It's about you. You will benefit because you will be surrounded by this. Yes. You, you will, you will get to relax because um, I can help you with this. Right. You will be more successful. Right? And people don't necessarily think that way. But again, that goes back into the empathy part, which I believe then summarizes the people that are hired by Vayner um, are people that are perhaps trending toward empathetic and they are thinking about others. Yeah, on a whole, yeah, yeah. for sure. And they're and they're interested in being in the gray a bit. Mm -hmm. Because the gray is unknown and the gray is something that we're all trying to define together. Yes, yes, I yeah. love that, I love that. You know, everything I learned, I mean, I really didn't say this in the beginning, but everything I learned, I feel like, aside from my family and Nana, was from waiting tables and bartending. I mean, everything I learned about customer service was about in the service industry right. and anticipation and knowing how to greet someone and knowing how to even upsell if I, you know, dared do that. Yeah. And to use their name and to look them in the eye and to be kind and respectful and responsible, right? <laughs> and to follow up all of these simple things that you would think, you know, and me as a former recruiter for Ritz Carlton, you know, we were really looking for who's going to follow up. Yeah. And yes. who was, who was going to send an email? Who was going to send a handwritten thank you note? Who was going to send a text? Who would send a gift? You know, um, it was all about the follow-up. All right. So last question I have for you. Um, do you believe in karma or good luck? Mm. I believe in karma. Yeah. I believe in good luck when I play roulette. Mm -hmm. I wish it was karma. Because <laughs> darn it, I would have won on all black. But um, uh, I believe in the energy of karma, which is when you do good to someone else, it comes back to you. When you do good to the world, when you act on something that's much bigger than yourself, as you've mentioned a couple of times, when you take care of others, it comes back somehow somewhere and I don't mean in a dollar form I mean in a beautiful day in a, a thank you in a smile and something or in an opportunity in so an opportunity. what so when you look at your career and this is the last point you were in San Francisco correct before working uh with with VaynerMedia correct was it San Francisco? I was in London oh, oh in London okay so um how did that call come about or did you apply? That's one question. And then what goodness were you, do you think perhaps, and you probably never even thought of this, were you giving out to the world so that that karma and the good intentions came back? Because you described this job and this position, Claude, as this is your dream job. This is amazing, right? This is what you've always wanted to do. So can you just last story? Go yeah. back to, did you get a call? Did you apply? Did Gary call you? How did it work? Yeah, my best friend uh, who was running Unilever Media at the time mm -hmm. had met Gary. Wrote, uh, she was in New York. I was here and I was there in London. And she wrote, uh, she wrote me and she said, you got to meet this guy. I don't know what it is, but you're two sides of the same coin. 
she introduced us on email and we, he set up a call and, and we spoke on the phone. And that was August of 2013, September of 2013. I came to New York, I met him and I was like, oh, meeting my brother. And then six months later, I started in New York. So that's what that was like. And I knew who Gary was. I had been following him. It was a dream come true to work with him. It is a dream come true to work with him. He's my mentor, he's my friend, he's my brother, he's my boss. And I, I mean, I, I, I try, I try, I try to live the golden rule. I mean, I, I, I really do my best. I really do my best to do unto others yeah. as I would want them to do unto me. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Nana, Nana was watching over us and, uh, and the rest is history, but I, this is my life's work. It's a culmination. I'm look, I have a whole back half now. I'm 52 and uh, the back half is going to be even better than the front half. But this is a great place for me to be in right now. And I'm very grateful. And I do count my lucky stars that I get up every single day and I get to do what I do. And it doesn't feel like work. I love this. I love this. I want to, I want to create spaces for people to thrive and for people to feel safe and like they belong. Yeah, you are scooping them up. You're creating brave, safe spaces, and you are helping to restore faith in humanity. So well done. Well done. Again, Claude, cannot thank you enough for the time. So many valuable insights. Um, I can't wait to see more of what you continue to share. Claude Silver, Chief Heart Officer at VaynerMedia. Um, Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, Silver, S-I-L-V-E-R. All you have to do is Google her and you find some phenomenal content about what you are doing that most people don't. So truly grateful. Any last words? Just go on out there and say thank you to someone today. Brilliant. Thank you again.